Hello, and welcome back to the Sync Lodge podcast series, Exploring Music. This is the second of two episodes titled 60s R&B, Soul and Northern Soul with Ivan Chandler and Billy Reeves. If you haven't already listened to the first episode, we do suggest you go back and listen to that one first. But so, let's rejoin the conversation. Is inspiration. I mean, I still remember in my first job, not as a songwriter, as a radio plugger for CBS's publishing company, and new writers were coming in all the time. And then I'd started writing at home, and I came up with this song, and I thought, oh, that's... I like that. And then I suddenly realised the whole melody, not the words, the whole melody, <laughs> was based on a song that one of the writers had written that had kind of got into mind, so I stopped it straight away. It's interesting you say that, because we were talking earlier on, weren't we, about how plugging is still very similar to how it was in the olden times with people going into record stations. That's something that's changed, where you would have someone from the publishing company plugging a song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because obviously it was just as good for them that it was played on the radio. Mm. Well, it's almost all independent people working on behalf of the label or the artist management now. Yeah, publishing plugging is probably something that's mm. a thing of the past. Well, the good thing about that is that I was being paid, but even if we didn't have a hit, if we got the airplay, there would be the PRS royalty. that would be made and in fact apparently I was the first plugger to be involved with a record that's played the maximum number of times on Radio 1 which I believe is six times right in a day the record I was working on was called The Highway Song by Nancy Sinatra written by the famous Kenny Young sometimes the record company would give up and two records that I really worked with and kept an eye on the sales. One was Jigga Jig by East of Eden, which I know is not exactly soul music, but it's pretty soulful. <laughs> and it was picked up as a Radio One Club theme tune. And after a year, it was still selling. And then one thing and the other, it got re-released, the band went on tour and that took off. And the other one was Funny Funny by The Sweet. And Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman, uh, I think we had Nicky Chin signed initially, and Phil Wayman produced the record, and a couple of things happened with that. One of them was that I managed to get a radio session for the suite, and when they looked into it, they were listed as a band with a keyboard player, but they didn't have a keyboard player, so they said to me, look, I know you've been plugging the record, but you've actually got to come and play on the session. (laughs) So I ended up doing a couple of radio shows with the suite, and one of them was a Radio One club, or whatever it was, in Leeds. And the band got into trouble because they were supposed to finish the song and they kept on going and it was crossing over into the news. And it was like, the news, as you know, is like everything revolves around the news. Even so- in music radio, you still got to have... Still, even now, you still, still have to have news. Yeah. It's funny how that's so similar now. You know, plugging, obviously, is as dissipated because there's so many... Like obviously, there's the three big major labels, but there's a lot of DIY indie labels as well, and therefore there's still loads of... Especially in London, there's still loads of DIY pluggers at radio. But it's funny how that's still very similar, where pluggers are trying to get music specialists to play their record because they believe that they can break a record via radio, which you can't really anymore. And it's funny how there's still on specialist music stations and Radio 2 and Radio 1, because Radio 2 is kind of a music station, but the three big BBC and the most listened to radio stations in the world still have live sessions on. You know, still studio setups. You've still got to be able to cut it live. But I'm not sure whether there's any evidence that you can break a record through radio. Well, you certainly won't with one of my... I'm down in Milford-on-Sea, place to be, and one of the local stations is Sam. 
Right. And they boast that they never play the same track twice. So I thought if somebody's trying to play Whatever. It, well, <laughs> during the day. I don't, well, I don't know. Because those oldie stations, obviously, which have become really big, you know, they've only got a very sort of like limited amount of bandwidth on their... Um, hard drives, haven't they? Where they play this, they play the same record. Will definitely pop up within three hours. Um, well, radio play is um, it's still so big. It's very strange, you know. And podcast being the kind, you know, if a if a blog is to a magazine column, um, what a podcast is to radio. There's even and there's internet only radio stations, and a lot of it is music, and a lot of it is talking about music. And it's fascinating that in this day and age, that's still such a big thing. Yeah, yeah, and just the well, audio It's a democratic podcast. thing, maybe. Is it, pop music is a democratic art form, so maybe talking about pop music and playing pop music has is, is become more democratic yeah. as it's become wider spread. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's always an interest in not just what the industry is saying people should listen to, but what else is out there, what's yeah. beside that. I think people still have, have a curiosity and an interest to go well, it's deeper. To, it's still, to a limited degree, in, and I can only really talk about London, where I work in local radio, it's still a cultural signifier as well. You know, there is still youthful music sung and listened to by youth that's designed to upset people's parents. Because me, you know, the punk rock generation, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, the sort of like extremes of metal and hip hop, we shouldn't be offended by anything. Um, there's a great meme, isn't there, of a, of a man sort of handing his young daughter a Talking Heads album. You know, inappropriate media for the youth they've got their own thing going and that is incredible that that still happens and even though you know maybe there isn't the the small venue scenes they're being closed down especially in london where a lot of areas are being gentrified notably soho notably in central london where you know no artist could possibly afford to live now in zone one mm-hmm. as tube users call it music is still a big thing and, and you know music inspired by soul music by american pop music is still a thing even as we head towards the third decade of the 21st century is fascinating mm-hmm. the longevity of it how it's lasted and, and it's become academic it's become monetized in a different ways through academia you know the BIM universities that I think there's now six sites where mm. essentially a fame school for all sorts of performing arts quite expensive because obviously you have to have a student loan now you don't you don't get a grant these days but it's amazing how that's been monetized and how rock critics from my day from the 90s are now working as lecturers in that organisation, you know, teaching kids how to be interviewed or, or how to be critics on the side to supplement their income. It's amazing how the the golden era has been monetised like it was, like you can be taught how to write a song, that you can be taught how to be interviewed is yeah, yes. another way of monetising pop music. Yes. Very yes. There, there's a lot of that, teaching people how to write songs, which is a funny thing. I'm certain a lot of the Motown writers, Holland, Ozzy Holland and others would have got into a song and felt something and then lived well, by the same token, Holland, Dozier Holland could be argued that they were throwing shit against the wall and see how much of it stuck. I mean, they were writing two songs a day. I thought it was more than that. <laughs> <laughs> their first album took 12 hours, their second album even longer. <laughs> but yeah, you've, you've got to listen to loads of music before you can become a songwriter. You can't make a movie without seeing Citizen Kane. Yeah, I'm not sure yeah. you can be taught how to write a song. I think you can be taught the craft of it, but to actually really to to Maybe be not crea- the art of it. But yeah, the art of it to be the creative side of it is, is something that is is it's, a, it's completely ephemeral. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and undefinable. Yeah, you know there is no formula. 
Online now, there's tons of stuff, you know, videos of, of teach you how to write a song and teach you how to write on guitar, teach you how to write on piano. Uh, and I believe that the more that that happens, the more concentrated that type of craft becomes, the more valuable the real writers will become. Yeah, I hope so. Mm -hmm. The other thing that disturbs, and that having said loads of positive things about songwriting, especially in the UK, the thing that disturbs me most is the um, socio-economic side of it. There's anecdotal evidence that show that left field artists are becoming much more increasingly from the middle classes. There was an explosion in the late 20th century, especially because of punk or, and because of house music, of people coming from socio-economic working class groups, mm -hmm. their way out of the gutter as it was, which again sort of like links us nicely. And voicing to their soul. frustrations and their points yeah. of view. And, yeah. you know, because it's supposed to be a democratic art form, pop music, which again links us nicely back to soul music of the industrial north and south of you know, sort of farming south of the United States. Increasingly, people are becoming middle, you know, it's middle class pop stars. Um, the 1975 Coldplay, these people are from backgrounds where the parents of my generation can indulge them, can pay for rehearsal space. They maybe, maybe there's a disused house they can rehearse in. And uh, of course, they don't need to be on the dole because yeah, there's yeah. no such thing now as being able to fiddle your doll while you while you get your band together. So increasingly, it's becoming very difficult for working class people to, yeah. um, to you know, you need a little bit of equipment as well, yeah. especially if you're going to record stuff yourself. My favourite story on that front of the doll situation is here we are in in North London, North West London, one of the biggest British bands of the 90s, certainly when it comes to their debut album, a band called The Darkness, mm -hmm. are essentially, you know, sort of like comical heavy metal group who have recently got back together and are doing some good business DIY, especially in Europe. They thank Camden Town Dole Office on their first album, you know, because in those days, as long as you kind of like proved that you were looking for work, like looking for a record deal, Camden Town being a sort of like, you know, slightly bohemian area in those days, were just sort of like, okay, guys, you know, keep the demos coming in because that proves that you're looking for work. There's absolutely, under this current government, there is no way you could get away with that now. There's a great, on the CD version of their debut album, which, which they recorded themselves, did millions. There's a, if you open up the middle of it, it's a photograph taken from the point of view of the bass stack of them playing in front of 60,000 people in some dust bowl in Shitkicker, Alabama, as part of a, a six-band tour which was put together by Def Leppard. So Def Leppard discovered them really early on. They played a Def Leppard fan club show, it was one of their earliest shows, thinking we're just going to get bowled off here. People are going to think we're taking the piss. But of course they were adored because they, you know, they really truly believe in everything they're doing. So they're playing this gig in front of 60,000 people in Alabama on this big tour that they did with Def Leppard. They were on the dole at the time. And I can't imagine any anybody now being mm -hmm. unemployed in their early 20s being able to go to America and play in front of 60,000 people, British group, yeah, it yeah. would be impossible yeah. now and that, that worries me. Well, it, it creativity, you know, creativity. Yeah, but the smart government will realise that they've made a lot of money out of that. Yeah, and people do. You know, smaller countries in Europe have government support. Mm -hmm. You know, notably in Iceland, Finland, and the Netherlands, where as long as you can prove that you are a, a creative artist, that you're looking for a record deal, you will get a grant for doing it. Mm -hmm. Because these small countries really want to put themselves on the map. If I can go back to what I'm talking about, you know, like Björk putting Iceland on the map, because the British invented 
pop music by taking those American tropes and adding the art school and the musical tradition to it. There's a certain arrogance, I think, about British pop music, which is why we fail so spectacularly at the Eurovision Song Contest, because we don't take it seriously. The greatest sport of them all, competitive songwriting, Grand Prix de Chanson, because the BBC doesn't want to spend a lot of money and they don't really understand how the rest of Europe works. But there might be an arrogance about French music as well. You've talked about... Well, they invented it, didn't they? It's a, it's a French... French tradition, isn't it? Grand Prix de Chanson. <laughs> Competitive songwriting. Now, I still don't think it's been resolved um, between the collection societies like PRS and the French SACEM, S-A-C-E-M. And uh, they deduct from all the income a percentage from all the money that SACEM collects, which will naturally include repertoire from America, Iceland, England, every, everywhere else. But they take a deduction and they invest that and support French writers. Yeah. So obviously, let's say British writers are saying, just a minute, that's some of that money's ours. And I don't know how that's ever no, they been resolved. Consi- they, they consider it an art form. You're French. Yeah. You know, there, there's certain protections, isn't there? There's only a certain amount of English language music you can play on French radio. Although they've eased up on that. When one year they, I don't know whether they came bottom, but they certainly came in the bottom four. And there was questions in Parliament asked in France about why we're doing so badly in the Eurovision Song Contest. So the next year, Etienne Daho was given the gig, one of the big sort of like, you know, the French touch, as it's called, the kind of like French dance music was given the gig. Okay, you're writing our song as you're officially the most successful French songwriter. Half of the songs in English. And they went mad. The French said, that's it, we've sold out. And they're still doing badly, the French, the because thing, they seem to think that it's still a song contest and it's not been a song contest for a long time. The one thing that was, if you like, created or manifested is droit moral, moral rights. All right. In France, you cannot buy out somebody's moral rights. In other countries, you could say, like, you sign a consent form, you give me all the rights to do this and basically I can do essentially what we want for it, as long as there's some consideration of whatever that might be. And um, there was an American conductor who was very unhappy because a record company did a best of and this conductor said I don't like this either you hear the whole work of me conducting and he waited to the album of this compilation of best overtures or whatever was released in France and then he went there and put a stop on it he said you've transgressed my moral right (laughs) I think the influence of particularly the Stones who were bigger than the Beatles in France the influence of the Stones and of Motown on French music creates some of the greatest records of the 60s Claude Francois and Jacques Dutronc's sort of attempts to cross the great chanson tradition of emotive storytelling and funny chords with the Stones version of R&B and Motown is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Dutronc and Claude Francois. He died, didn't he? Because he went to change a light bulb in his bathroom. In his bath, yeah. Claude, Cl- 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 he wrote. Um, My way. Yeah, Dabitude. Da- yeah, Dabitude. Uh, Com Dabitude. Yeah, Com Dabitude, as, as usual, yes. yeah, yeah. Which became My Way, yeah. But, yeah, the French take on the Motown really? sound is really interesting, yeah. Yeah, I had no experience. Yeah, well, um, uh, Je suis contente by Jacques Dutronc. Um, or Les Responsables by Jack Dutronc. He was married to um, Francoise Hardy for many years. His son, Thomas, is a very famous French jazz player because obviously the French love their jazz as well. 
And Claude Francois was the first to do cover versions of Motown tracks on his TV show and scandalised France in 66 by having black go-go dancers on his TV show. He was a real character, Clo-Clo. <laughs> yeah, so tentacles of, of that Motown and stacked sound across the world and the way it's kind of adopted and adapted into different cultures. Mm-hmm. France is particularly interesting. It is true is that music is the only international language that you can communicate with people. You yeah. could even have a relationship with somebody by just enjoying music and... and it's magical, I think. It's psychedelic. You know, yeah. it's, it sparks the same thing in our brains that psychedelic drugs do. I've played in bands in different parts of the world where I didn't speak the same language as everybody else mm. in the band. And I played with people in Ukraine and went back there and played quite a, quite a few different shows with these people. And we had maybe five or six words between us. It's also interesting, I think, to explore music that has no influence from American rhythm and blues as well. Once you get beyond the Iron Curtain, you start getting into the Lydian mode of mm-hmm. Arab, Jewish, oh, um, yeah. Balkan music, and the Northern European tradition of you know those prog bands from Germany and Sweden, Norway and Finland who refused to have anything to do with rhythm and blues and and looked at their own cultures and created rock bands Mm -hmm. from that. That's also very interesting, is to explore music that has no influence whatsoever from rhythm and blues. I've always found it interesting where it's mixed. So I come from a very American, British pop influence, uh, 60s and 70s. And but to play with people like in Ukraine and Hungary, that that's not their route. Yeah. And uh, I played with a violinist who was a real generational, came from gypsies. And he played traditional gypsy music. Right, yeah. And so when he came to playing my songs with him, he took a whole different stance on it. Yeah. I, I felt it worked wonderfully. Right? The passion was there, but it wasn't based on, oh yeah, I know what you're trying to do. And yeah. so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll fit in with you. You wouldn't hear anything like that on British radio. You know, the Americans are much more eclectic. They've got a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. You still have a Grammy for polka, you know, whereas in the the UK that would be dismissed as world music and it would be put onto Radio 3 and it would be put in a very small box. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to Eurovision, that's why we do so badly because we only really look to America. We looked to Sweden for a little while. Mm -hmm. The Swedes were sort of like big, you know, record producers in the sort of first decade of this millennium when it came to dance music, house music, outside of the current black music, urban black music, spiritual jazz, mm-hmm. drill and grime, outside of that we don't look beyond American music probably enough in this country. You hear that on British radio a lot, if you listen to Six Music it's a very standardised during the day alterno indie thing, you can tell a record will be played on Six Music, you can tell what station you're listening to and we're not, we're, we're getting increasingly square in this country. I've got a CD player and I've recently refound my Booker T and the MG's mm. box set. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jelly Bread yeah. and Tic Tac Toe and that number you thought that I should do with my band that we didn't in the end, Mrs. Robinson, a version Their of Their version that. of Mrs. Robinson is great. Stinky version of <laughs> Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> so uh, there we are. Back yeah, to four Green people. Onions. Four people. Yeah. yeah. Booker T and the MG's, four yeah, people, amazing. mixed race, amazing. Yeah, amazing just the space they put in between it yeah. and them being the backing band for the label, right? Yeah, that's the key. Yeah. Well, that's how it happened, wasn't it? Apparently, a singer didn't turn up, and so oh, right. Booker T said, I've got this instrumental, and it's green, and it's doom, yeah. doom, doom, doom. Yeah, that's a great track. We need to call it something stinky. 
said Donald Duck Dumb. That's why it was called Green Onions. Is that right? Something stinky? Yeah, because that's really, that's really, <laughs> really funky meaning stinky. You know, that's a really stinky track. We and then Sonny Boy, Sonny Boy Williamson came along and used the same riff for You Gotta Help Me. That's a great story, though, the name Green Onions. Yeah, because I always wondered. That'd be something stinky. I always wondered why they called it Green Onions. Yeah, because it had to be something stinky. Maybe music isn't stinky enough these days. That's it. Well, you know, Grime and Drill is a little bit stinky. You know, it's fascinating the way they use rhythm, those East London hip-hop kids, because they're not on the beat. The backing tracks are very skittery. The way that they're developing the poetry over the top is very different, very difficult to get the centre of it, because all the tentacles of hip-hop, all the tentacles of the extremes of metal, especially European metal, doesn't look back to a golden age. There's no such thing as old school in those situations. If you're doing something that sounds like something else, you need to have your chops. You need to be able to play, you need to be able to rap, you need to be able to produce in those genres. And they are the only genres that aren't listened to by parents. There's no looking backwards in those genres, which is why the kind of 200 subgenres of solos are so fascinating. Right. And successful. Yeah, yeah. But it's a big thing and it's a big DIY thing. It's also provided a TV star in Big Nasty. His stuff has gone beyond working with Ed Sheeran and now he's a recognisable figure on TV. <laughs> you know, because he's a character. There's the rub, isn't it, is to look back to be influenced, but look forward to be creative. Yeah. I think looking back to be influenced, there has to be a bit of a carefulness about it, not just trying to be influenced, trying to find something that, if, if I could play like that, I find something that, that will make yeah, me cool. Yeah, nothing like that now. I read a piece in one of the newspapers a couple of weeks ago where, I think it was Music Week, or one of the big sort of like um, trade organisations had asked iTunes, because obviously iTunes was in the news recently, because while well, Apple's moving over sure, everything sure. To, to streaming, to ask iTunes to tell them what's the top 10 80s sales since the millennium. So tracks that were recorded and released in the 1980s, but only looking at sales on iTunes, so millennial sales, and it was all hair metal. There wasn't any alternos in the top 10. It was things like Africa, Journey, Foreigner, Summer of 69 by Brian Adams. You think, what? And we're talking millions and millions of downloads of those tracks. Some of them have had a, a you know, new life in, you know, in Family Guy, and yeah, it's all hair metal. And it's because there's nothing really like that now. So that was what's, you know, obviously it was music that was successful at the time. It's music that's listened to by parents. But yeah, the top yeah. 10 is all that kind of like sheeny hair right. pop metal because there's nothing like that at the moment. So that's the next thing, I think. Let's get some, you know, Yacht Rock, obviously. Yacht Rock, yacht rock will come back and hair metal will come back. Right. If we're talking the next sort of like retro the retro thing to come back, put your money on, put your money on. If, if one of the BIM organisations can put together a hair metal. Because it's also BAM. What's the difference between BIM and BAM? Funnily enough, in one of my first jobs looking for people to sign, I came across this band, drove all the way out to York, and this particular band I really liked. We never signed them, but the main guy was Kevin Nixon, who was, became a founder of the Brighton Institute of Modern Music. That's what BIM went BIM. But near where I am now, we've got BAM, the Bournemouth Academy of Modern <laughs> Music. <laughs> right. And, okay. uh, so a little bit like the kind of a little bit of the kind of Woolworths 
version of BIM. <laughs> the Winfield version of BIM. The MFP version of it, right. But we have seen some artists that have come through those sort of schools. Loads. Yeah. Loads. I mean, you know, Coldplay come from a B-Tech music course, you know, the br- biggest British band of the 21st century. They're all, they all come from these university courses. Just, just to go back a bit to the soul thing and the influence, one of the things that struck me was the influence at different times in the sort of alternative uh, new music that was coming up. The first album I bought for myself was Louis Transformer mm. and on his walk on the wild side. Right? Yeah. And that for me always had this soul. And he also sings and the color girls sing to yeah. do to do. And that for me had this transition for Lou Reed where he went from the Velvet Underground and he really brought into this soul thing, right? Yeah. Mm. And at the time the connection never yeah. went for me. I just really liked that. And the other one was Elvis Costello. When he came out, he obviously had that R&B influence. Totally, yeah. His dad was a jazzer, and he came from that pub world where people were playing R&B. Mm-hmm. Nick Lone, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Phil, good as mentioned earlier on. Yeah. Soul music was dying because it was becoming funk, and it was becoming much more conscious, and it was becoming disco, and it was becoming more funky when Bowie and Lou Reed started adding art school to it, mm-hmm. and it resurrected it in a way. Mm-hmm. There's another interesting anecdote from my life about the way that the States and the British see that classic American soul sound. This most recent time I went to New York City, straight to Bleecker, to see how things had changed. You know, that the record shops were, were dying off and it was becoming more gentrified. But there's one guy that was kind of surviving there, going, great, you know, I've seen all the competition off, brilliant. Me and Helen, my missus, we walked in there, it was about five, six years ago, we walked in there and guys, I can't remember the name of the store, but the guys at the counter at the back, you know, records to the left and to right, long, thin shop. And as soon as we opened the door, the guy went, uh, the Motown of Souls right there on your left, right? So I went sort of like storming up to him, said, how did you know that's what I was in here for? He said, you guys are British, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, when British people come in here, that's what they're after. And I said, well, why do you think that is? You know, he said, well, what, if I was American or Canadian or Japanese, what would I be coming in for? And he said, well, ironically, British stuff. If you were an American guy coming in here of your age, you'd be after Led Zepp and Rolling Stones rarities, Beatles rarities, Amen Corner, Moody Blues over here. That's all the stuff that's expensive in here. And he said, we have so, there was so much American soul. There was so much of it. So here it's not rare. You know, there was millions, but, you know, if you want to pick up some, which I did, you know, I went straight into the Temptations section, you know, you know, it was $2, $3, pristine copies, which in the UK and American, uh, and America, especially if it was an American release, would be a cost of fortune. Yeah, yeah. It's because we regard it as high art, whereas the American, he said, we Americans, we just regard it as, you know, sort of like the trash of the time, whereas the collectible so stuff is the kind of important you know, stuff of my youth, because he was a little bit older than me. My youth is, you know, it's, it's Floyd and it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. It that, would be that, completely that the opposite. Yeah, because we, and also we don't like it, we don't like a stayer in the UK. It's partly a good thing and partly a bad thing. It's once you've had two years, that's it, piss off. Right. Right. My wife, when Tom Jones comes on the telly, give it up, mate. It's the only time I ever see a bit yeah. aggressive. Whereas in the States and certain other places, I mean, if the Stones are in town, they'll just they'll put all the traffic lights on green to get into the right. Enormo Dome on time. Whereas they're considered a bunch of old, even though they still do good business, someone like that would be considered a right old fart. Apparently they did, they did a great show in, in Chicago a couple of weeks yeah. ago. The Stones just have been really on top of their game. Whereas, of course, we like our pop stars to die. You know, that's an important thing. I mean, if somehow we discovered that Dusty Springfield was still alive, there isn't a venue big enough to hold her. Right. And yet she was playing in front of 80 people by the time she died. Right. So, yeah. yeah, so we don't like a stir. We like someone to go away and die. Yeah. 
to be big again. But this, in Did the you know that thing, Randy Newman song, I'm Dead But I Don't Know mm-hmm. It? Do you know that? That's so funny. We haven't got an equivalent of that. We haven't got an equivalent of the tongue-in-cheek, clever lyricist tradition, mm-hmm. really. We did have, we had a kind of like British version of it, didn't you, with your, with Richard Stillgoes and all the rest of it. You're kind of like witty songwriter. Probably the nearest we've got now is Grace Petrie, but we haven't really got that. Yeah, I envy the Americans for that. The songwriter as, arti- songwriter as artist, we haven't got that. It's funny though, because the British are, have a great sense of comedy, a great sense of humour in, in general. There's, there's certain things that we consider to be beyond humour. And we do consider pop music to be an art form, whereas in the States I think it's considered more business-like, you know, uh, in America you'll go to a show, in Britain you'll go to a gig, you know, we still consider pop music to be a kind of branch of art rather than a branch of commerce. I think the States, if they're, I mean, I'm making a massive generalisation there, but yeah, we don't, you know, the songwriter is often a a faceless individual, unless they're a singer-songwriter, you know, we've got Ed Sheeran and loads of kind of Ed Sheeran light, you know, songwriter bros, you know, with with, with their guitars, Um, but all of that stuff is very, very mainstream and of course very cheap to discover and very cheap to There's another artist, Ed Sheeran, that's borrowed so much from the 60s R&B and soul. Oh no, totally, yeah. And hip-hop, you know, I mean, he's, he was, two years ago, was written about in one of the American trade press as the most influential person in, in black music in America, Ed Sheeran. You know, because get him in on it and then you would cross over that. A lot of that happens in hip-hop, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, Where you yeah. have three or four different artists where you bring all of their fans together. That wouldn't have happened a few years ago. Yeah, bringing Ed Sheeran into your track means wallop. That's a great thing, this chat. Um, it's part of life, but change is going on all the time. I mean, not really stuck. There's so much change always going on, and that's a that's something in art and music that won't change, whether there's commerce involved or not. Yeah, that's well, right. Well, the, the commerce yeah. is, you know, to, to, to get all Andy Warhol on your ass, you know, the, the, the two things are combined. You know, the art is the commerce. I mean, if you're not selling records, but you're, you know, you're making music, then it's a border of our indulgence, isn't it, comrade? Well, that, know, that, that's considered in some ways, right? Considered in some ways, but then every now and then it, it's somebody that was just making it for themselves is discovered, yeah. and it's 20 years later, and they're seen as a great artist. Yeah, that's right? the way it You know, in Canada, there is a, a big surgeons for folk art, and these guys are just little you know, northern Quebec guys that are just working in just to entertain themselves. They make these little carvings, they do this stuff. And it became huge in New York and they sold for tons of music. I think there's a musical equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of kind of like DIY outsider artists that are really good mm-hmm. knocking about in the UK at the moment. It's just harder to discover it. That's the, that's the trouble when I talk to friends of mine that are very cynical or, or they only listen to records that they bought when they were young. Because it soundtracks their life, you know. It's mm-hmm. kind of like sure. it's kind of got the mathematics of nostalgia. Oh, this is forty years old, so therefore I need to go back to it. Is that it's just harder now to discover it? But you, but you had to put the work in then. You know, it was all it was all very well reading the music papers or listening to your groovy friends or listening to John Peel about going after one thing. You could do that now. You could read one magazine, one blog, one radio. Um, DJ and, and rely on them to provide you with all your music so it's just harder to discover what you like now because there's so much out there but so as, a result much of that, there's, as a result of that there's so much good stuff out there now mm-hmm. a lot of it is the festivals have become such a big thing because you can discover things at those 
where you'll pay your money for three days and it'll have a wide range of... And you of hear stuff you've on. never heard before. And this site is yeah, getting yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Now, we're in the middle of festival season here now with the, you know, the, the granddaddy of them all. Yeah, coming up, but there's loads of others. It's happening also globally, I think, in Austria. In the last five, six years, the festivals have really taken off. And right now they have the, what's called, or they just finished it, what's called the Dano Fest, which is, they say it's the world's largest free festival. Wow, free? They, wow, Yeah, it's, it's on the island in the center of the city, the big Dano Island. And they say they get millions, millions of people coming there. And I'm not With sure. There's a lot if, of sponsorship, I should think. It's heavily sponsored, heavily sponsored by the state, right? It's heavily sponsored by the city. And then there's also money from the, all the sales. You know, they, yeah. they, have, they have people selling food and T-shirts and all kinds of yeah. stuff, right? So there's money for that. They get very big bands and big very, artists. Very few here are free. Milford on Sea Festival is free, and that's coming up that's, in a couple of weeks. I think that's actually three times you've managed to mention Milford on Sea. I moved there well three done, years well ago. Well done. And I absolutely big love soul the place. scene. Of course, there is. Of course, because there'd be the Go Go Five. You know, the what great an explosive mix of Motown, sixties soul, jazz, rock and blues. Well, literally, without a shadow of a doubt, <laughs> not metaphorically the greatest soul band in the whole of the United Kingdom is now based in Milford-on-Sea. They're excellent, excellent. Well, I think maybe that's a good place to stop. Yeah, we don't. We can't go any further than the go-go Well, you five. can't, because if you get to Milford-on-Sea, you don't really want to go any further unless you get the ferry <laughs> to the Isle of Wight. <laughs> really, thank you very much for both of you. Well, thanks for inviting me. I very interesting. forget about all the knowledge and... Uh, so I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. You know, if oh, Ivan and I have both been musicians and both played on hit records, but coming from two completely different backgrounds, coming from someone who worked hard to learn how to play an instrument and, you know, adapted their style and can play anything and um, understands the business to a total tire kicker. Right. You know, I'm a total nerd who never bothered to learn an instrument. And that brings us to the end of the second of two episodes titled 60s R&B Soul and Northern Soul with Ivan Chandler and Billy Reeves. This episode of Exploring Music was recorded at The Joint, the Central London Rehearsal Studios. You can find them at thejoint.org.uk. Our guest musicians playing along with the conversation were Joe Shearl on bass and Peter Meyerhofer on handpan. The music was recorded at the Sync Lodge Studios, Vienna, Austria. You have been listening to the Sync Lodge podcast series, Exploring Music. My name is Lionel Lodge, and I thank you very much for joining us. Till next time.